They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 38, No Stone Unturned. I want to focus on three things in this podcast. Firstly, a piece of research that we'd begun based on a thought that Ian had had, that the ring that was on Fred's hand was being worn as an indicator of widowerhood, that a wedding ring on the right hand may have indicated a man whose wife had died. Secondly, Matthew James Jackson. Joe had been digging into the archives to try and find out more about the story of him appearing in a Bristol hospital in late 1972, having lost his memory. She did that work, and she found quite a lot more besides. And thirdly, I had had an opportunity to meet someone I'd been wanting to speak to for quite a while a lovely lady called Eve Stone. Now Eve Stone is interesting because she is the widow of Peter Stone and Peter Stone was the brother of Graham Stone and together they owned Peter Graham Gent's hairdressers where Frank Kuhn worked. Graham, Graham's wife and Peter have all passed away now so Eve is the last surviving member of that generation. She knew the hairdressing shop very, very well. She knew everyone who worked there well. She knew Frank Kuhn very, very well. But first, I needed to catch up with Jo. She's been juggling a lot of work at the moment with her relentless research on Fred. And she'd found something, something fascinating and new. Hello, Joe. How are you doing? We haven't spoken for a while, have we? Yes, I know. Sorry about that. It's all go at this end, but nice to hear your voice. And yours. I know you've had your hands full. So the first thing just to talk about is something that builds on an idea that Ian had in the last podcast about this ring and whether Fred was wearing the ring as a memento, i.e. his wife's old ring, if something terrible had happened to his wife and the ring just happened to fit him, so he wore it on that hand. But what it would do is imply that the wife had met a fairly recent death. Yes, yes. After the ring was made, because we know the ring was made in 67, 68, but obviously prior to 1970, when's the latest that Fred could have been killed. So what we're really looking at here is an idea around were there any wives or women dying young in the area in the period 68 to 1970? Yeah. 
That was an interesting task, actually, and I'll I'll try and be brief. So what I was looking for, obviously, were deceased women from, I mean, your remit was, you know, you said to me, look at Burton, Repton and Derby, Mm. 68, 69, 70 uh, deceased women. And I'll tell you now, I found no candidates for the wife of, of Fred. Mm-hmm. Because the women I'd got, obviously, I have to cross-check everything. It takes a while. They'd either married before, you know, 68, 67. Yeah. Now, that was very common because bear in mind, too, I'm looking at women who were the same age as Fred. Important, did... yeah. No point looking yes. at people who are 69 because they're not they're not no. going to be married to Fred, are they? No, and I widen the parameters going from all the kind of verdicts of, you know, what his age might have been. I really widened it to age between 23 and sort of, you know, 39, 40. Mm. So I I widened it. So they'd either married um, well before 68, and that was very common, Mm. or the the deceased woman had not married at all, Mm. or in in an extremely rare case where um, I found a marriage in 68, the husband mm. I then found, because I then I needed to look at that man, mm. had gone on to remarry, and that was after Fred's death. Great. Does that make sense to you? Makes perfect sense. And one of yeah. the things that when you know I had, had a quick look at that, one of the things that happily I did notice that there were relatively few women dying young, uh between the ages of twenty-five and forty. Yes, uh, or twenty and forty right. in that period. Yeah, you, you, you said to me at the time, you said, Joe, this isn't going to be a massive task because you're going to find statistically there aren't many. And you were right. And, and there were more men who died young, actually. Yeah. And so, yeah, but it was an interesting task. I thought Ian's idea was a very good one, but I've not come up with anything for him. Yeah, it was a good idea, worth checking out. But I think this idea that if they're anything like local and he was wearing his wife's ring, and that's what they found with the body, I think we can say that's unlikely to have been the case based on the research that we've done, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the only weak link here, which I think quite a lot of our listeners are aware of, is I cannot look through the Birmingham deaths because there are so many of them that the data will not come up for me. No no matter how much I segment it, it it says too many to be... um, to be given. So that's that issue. The other thing that's been knocking around since the last podcast is this thing we discovered about Matthew James Jackson and that he'd been in Bristol. He goes missing in February 1970, turns up in late 72, so two and a half years later, in Bristol in a hospital suffering from memory loss. And we started to look a little bit more around that, didn't we? And and I think you found some quite interesting things out. I did, actually. And it's, it's strange, Ken, you know, because one must always check these newspaper archives regularly because they do actually upload more things. You and Correct. I have discovered that. They, it, they are constantly being worked on and updated and more things come on. And, and that's making me very happy. So just to remind our listeners of the article, you that found this article, um lost it was december at 72 bristol lost memory man named the man who's been in bristol royal infirmary last 10 days suffering from loss of memory being identified matthew james jackson of burton on trent what's interesting about that joe is that even though it's two and a half years later he doesn't consider himself matthew james jackson of skegness 
He no. very much considers himself Matthew James Jackson of Burton. Yes, it's really on my mind. He has a Burton connection there. Yeah, because this article says, you know, doctors expect his memory to return within the next few days. So at the time of this report, his memory's not come back. So somehow he has been identified yeah. as Matthew of Burton. Now, is it somebody who's told them that? We, we've, got a, we've, we've got a thing in the paper, haven't we, from 1970, where the police have put that in to say this man's gone missing from 126 Newton Road. Uh, so he might have been in... It might have been in the uh, the police's missing persons file. I and mean, the two things, they were going through missing people, found this guy that matched him physically from Burton, and that's how they tracked it down. Could be. Don't know. I haven't but, thought uh, of that. So he could have had a couple of lost years in Bristol. Mm. But um, Ian had said, I think it was to me or to, yeah, to me, he said, oh, Joe, it, 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 it implies there's an earlier report from that one I've just read out. I found it. I found it. Okay. Early report, and it's you know it's so interesting. It gives us such a rich description, which actually is quite important to me, which I can explain mm. later. Mm-hmm. This early report, fifth of December, Bristol Evening News, and it says a a man lost his memory. I'll try and paraphrase it. Go for He's it. Be, being detained in Bristol Royal Infirmary, when he walked into the accident department last Friday. He had two slight grazes on his forehead, which could have been caused by a fall. And so they appeal for information and they give a rich description. He's aged 35 to 40, five foot nine of medium build. So not fat, not thin. Mm. Ginger hair receding at the front, a ginger moustache, long side sideboards it says sideboards there but i think mm. it might be a typo it probably says should say side people said sideboards and sideburns for the same thing back then did they yeah no wait wait for this now ian will love this the man had large nicotine stained hands right a, a soft voice and a northern accent can i find that interesting because we know he was skegness really raised he was lived in lincolnshire skegness from the age of five Yes, he did. And that's where he's picked his accent up from. Yeah. But they're saying here in Bristol, they call that a northern accent. And yeah. me being a northerner, I think, ah, oh, a bit of a difference, but never mind. Yeah. Now, that's quite important. He was wearing a blue raincoat, a suit, shirt and tie and black shoes. And also, I want you to keep in mind, he dresses smartly. That's the physical description of him. Moustache, ginger hair, receding hairline. One marries up with... The man that went missing from 126 Newton Road, but it also t- tallies up with Velia's husband. You know, I remember oh, when, yeah. when Velia described Matthew, that's how she's described him. Oh, absolutely. Like I think mean, we know we're talking about the same man. Clearly. In fact, I'll tell you, I'm gonna jump, I'm gonna jump actually to something I was gonna keep to the end. But the reason I'm so interested in that description, Ken, because I often think about Matthew, what did he do until his death? Um, and he died of some sort of lung disease. but yeah. And he was married, it said on the death certificate. I have never, ever found that marriage, Ken. Okay, but interesting. Ne- never mind. 1974, Lincoln Echo. Mm. An 18-year-old girl was attacked and assaulted by a man, suffered a wound on her forehead, two fractures to the jaw. Now wait for the description of the man. The man they would like to interview is described as 30 to 40, 5 foot 10, because she's remembering, isn't she? 
mm. with ginger to fair hair receding at the front, full patch at the back, ginger moustache, red face, large hands, <laughs> wait for his clothes. He mm. was wearing a black jacket, white shirt and bluish trousers. And I, in my little head, I'm thinking, oh, is that our Matthew? When was that? That was 74 Lincolnshire. Now, remember, that's a little bit of a patch of his. And his and sister's I... near there, isn't she? Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, his stone. His sister my... didn't want to talk to me when I rang her. Yeah. But they, they were definitely in that neck of the woods. Yes, at one point, for sure. But you okay. see, he was a traveller, because I've still got things to tell you, Ken. Don't go away. Okay. But wait for this. Mm -hmm. Right, so you know that he's found in Bristol Infirmary in December. Go on. Astonishingly, earlier that same year, June 72, yeah. he appeared at Boston Police Station, I mustn't start laughing, in Lincolnshire. Mm. So no, we're not Bristol now, we're somehow in Lincolnshire. This is a bit earlier, in the yeah. same year... But he yeah. was in. He appears at Boston Police Station, Lincolnshire, with memory loss. Here we go. Uh, it's Matthew James Jackson, is it? Yeah, let me read it to you. The man who walked into Boston Police Station a week ago and said he did not know who he was has now been identified as Matthew Jackson of Burton-on-Trent. Wow. I'm telling you. I know it doesn't say Matthew James Jackson. I'm telling oh, it's you. The same it's one. Same it's one. the same one. Is there any description with that one? No. Annoyingly so. Okay. And then it says, well, I've not found the previous article. There must have been something that went with that, and I tried. Okay. It says, Mr. Jackson is being detained at Raunsby Hospital. Now, Raunsby Hospital was a mental health institution in Lincolnshire. So there's two really interesting bits there you found. So, well, three. First thing we found in the, the first report from Bristol from this, from earlier than December 72, saying this is the description of the man we've got, which they subsequently proved to be Matthew James Jackson. That's in yep. Bristol. Yep. Then in June 1972, there's a virtually identical scenario with Matthew James Jackson suffering from memory loss, but this time in Lincolnshire. Yep. Boston in Lincolnshire. Boston, Lincolnshire, which is just yeah. down the coast from Skegness. It's not a million Absolutely. miles from Skegness. It's about it's about 45, 50 miles from Skegness down the coast. Yeah. Interesting. He's wandering. He's wandering around and he's he's got patches and it's just odd. I'm not quite sure. I have a theory what the Bristol connection is, but I'm not going to run that past you at the moment. Got to prove okay. it. But and you see. I know you must be thinking this. What makes him lose his memory? I mean, well, I've I got don't... a feeling losing your memory can be very convenient excuse sometimes uh, mm. for for doing having done things. But the interesting, the other other thing is, you find a man fitting his description involved in an assault on a woman. Yeah, in nineteen seventy four. Yep. Okay. Well, um, we need to do some more digging on that, but that I is fascinating. Do. But what we do yeah. know, what we absolutely know, is that Matthew James Jackson in 72 was back in Lincolnshire. Yep. He's going between Lincolnshire and Bristol. And possibly and Burton. Burton, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how he was. he's being identified, you see. 
Kent? I but, don't know. But he's, he seems to be... He was in Burton in 70. We know that. Yep. Goes missing from 126 Newton Road. Ends up in... Goes to Lincoln first, because he's in Lincoln before he's in Bristol. Yep. In, in Boston. At that time, he's identified as being someone from Burton. Then he goes to Bristol. Does the same thing. Loses his memory again. But is identified as someone from Burton. Yes, so, Ken. So there's this triangle going on with uh, there is. Matthew James Jackson, isn't there? Yeah. Wow. Well, I don't know if you want to cut me off now, Ken, but I did find something that's sad, actually. Go on. Go on. To do with Valia, because, I, you know, we're all very fond of her. And yeah. I did very sad. And it gives you what you tells you even more about the man. Pen. Okay, okay. I very sadly found an article because things are coming up all the time now. This is in 63, okay? Yeah. And um, they've been married five years. So this is yeah. gone. We're going back a decade now. So we're back we in, in, 19, in 1963. Okay. Yeah. Don't want to confuse the listener. So thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Uh, they've been ma married for five years, okay? They got married in 58, but they're now okay. estranged. Okay. Now, oh, a 26-year-old man who stole the £84 savings. Ken, that was a lot of money in those it days. It was a lot of money. Over his estranged wife, was told by magistrates at Spilsby, so we're back in, you know, where, well, Lincolnshire. we know that, yeah, Lincolnshire. This was the most despicable thing to do. It took Mrs. Valia Jackson three years to save up the money, which oh, she kept dear. in a locked trunk. It took ex-Borstal boy, Matthew James Jackson, just three weeks to spend it all in London. Ken, he goes everywhere, Matthew. He does. London. Now, we must remember, though, when they married in 58, he was already with the um, the Royal Artillery in Woolwich. Yes, he was. And That's so where they went to live. Yeah, and he was already there. So London's his patch as well, you see. And their first child was born in Woolwich and they were still living there yeah. in 61. Yeah. Anyhow, 63, they're in Skegness. Now, Inspector Albert Starr said, Mrs. Jackson, our failure, was employed as a housekeeper at a house at Church Lane, Skegness, and she was living there with her two young children, aged three and 18 months. So she's trying to make a life by herself. Mm. Now, in a locked trunk in a room, she kept the amount of money which she had been able to save over three years, and that would have been hard. A lot yeah. of money in 1963. To save that by yourself, just as a housekeeper, that mm. that woman is, is a noble woman. And she and Jackson, who'd married in 58, had not lived together for some time. Mm. But in October, Jackson returned to Skegness. It doesn't say where he'd been, our wandering mm. man. Mm. where he took a flat in Rutland Road and occasionally mm. visited his wife, taking the children out for a walk. And on February 5th, he took the children out. And Mrs Jackson, she had to leave the house, Got must have gone on an errand. And when she got back, Jackson had already turned and he left later saying, I'll see you tomorrow. Mm. Now, Mrs Jackson's suspicions were aroused when she went upstairs and saw a pair of pincers lying near her, the trunk where she kept her savings. She looked inside and found the money had gone. Mm. When Jackson was arrested, he had not a penny in his possession. Mm. In the statement, Jackson said he'd returned to Skegness to get work and become reconciled with his family. I visited my wife most days, but owing to the unusual circumstances, we didn't live together. The statement said he took the money on a sudden impulse. 
The statement continued, while I was in London, another patch of his ken, I was careless with the money and spent the whole issue. I realised the money was failures. I did it out of spite and selfishness on my part. Hey, wait for this. Jackson, who had a number of convictions, including three prison sentences for larceny, mm -hmm. told the magistrates, I should have had more sense. Don't well, forget, though, he, he was stealing from his family. And on that oh, yeah, he stole, from, he stole from his family. I mean, look, this, he, he's just a badden. He's a real badden. Yeah. And and not only that, I mean, I mean, he was he was physically very abusive to Velia as well. So, I remember Velia telling me actually when I spoke to her that he'd stolen from her. Uh, I didn't push the point, but this is clearly what that was about. Yeah, uh, yeah. he stole he stole her, he stole her life savings, set her back yeah. to absolute square one with the kids. Terrible. There's more to Jackson, isn't there? There's more yeah, to Jackson. He really doesn't care. You know, he's a thief. Um. He travels, and that to me is very, very interesting. So yeah. I'm, I'm watching him, Ken. Yeah, you we know, need to. I'm always clocking him. Well, this is good, and it's good that we've been able to track down more about Jackson because you know he does leave that house at an extraordinarily suspicious time in mm, relation yep. to uh, Fred. I think also if we can find out more about this girl who was assaulted in '74, yes, if that's Jackson. Yeah, I'm going oh, there are other looking. things that Jackson's done that we need to track down. That's what I'm going to be looking for. And as you say, February 70, when he went missing from, you know, Newton Road, you know, according to the verdict on Fred, is within absolutely the parameter of when he could have been murdered. So 100%. Perfect timing. Brilliant. Well, that's been a great... Great exercise. Thanks for doing all that, particularly with everything you've been having to juggle as well. So we've done the task in terms of their wives that died recently in the area that that didn't yield anything but you know it was a it was a long shot anyway but worth just crossing off but the stuff you've been able to find out on Matthew James Jackson is uh is adding a lot of interest to uh to him I think yeah well it's lovely to speak to you Ken yeah and you we'll catch up again soon but uh thanks very much for the update oh my pleasure see you soon bye Thanks for listening to the podcast and a particularly big welcome to all our new listeners. We are so pleased to have you alongside us on this journey. Now I know the Facebook page run by Kim Macbeth and Neil Deville is seeing lots of activity from new listeners at the moment. That is a great place to make your points and also to ask any questions. Remember also you can reach us by email at fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. And that email address has been getting very busy recently with some great questions coming in. And a special shout out to Dabney Goff in Honolulu, Hawaii, and Gun Telling Knudsen in Norway. I'm astonished, constantly astonished, about how this podcast has reached all the different corners of the world. I had a particularly interesting email from Ian Loudon that got me thinking in particular about a curious fact of this case and he asked two very salient questions was the head switched to prevent identification is that why it was removed so quickly that's a good question and secondly wasn't it a coincidence that a very senior level home office pathologist Keith Mant just happened 
to be in the vicinity on holiday to take over the investigation from Dr. Van der Merwe. Why was a top-level Home Office pathologist getting involved with what was a routine murder in a nondescript Midlands town? They are two extremely good questions. Now, I've gone back and listened to the original episodes and looked at the book again. In fact, the book talks about the body being taken in one piece from that murder scene. But we know something different because we spoke to the scenes a crimes officer who was the man who did it. And he said very clearly that the head had been separated by the pathologist when it was still in the ground. Both of those things can't be right. And I'm inclined to believe the scenes a crimes officer. And secondly, Keith Mant. Now, Keith Mant was very senior. He was only one rung down from a man called Dr. Keith Simpson, who was the most preeminent home office pathologist of the day, about to retire. When he did retire, Keith Mant took over. So Keith Mant was the man in relation to pathology. They were either very fortunate indeed to have him on hand, or it's very suspicious. He's too big a fish for a local murder. What was going on? Was it innocent? Was it not innocent? But those two questions are great questions and questions that probably require deeper analysis than I've just given them. But thanks Ian, that kind of question really does move the investigation along. But it's time to get back to the story. So make yourself a cup of tea, grab yourself a biscuit and make yourself comfortable. Occasionally, people ask me why I bother committing to producing a podcast regularly rather than just quietly researching the case and producing a book or something afterwards. That certainly would be less pressure. But the main reason for that is that I get to enlist the help of listeners. Unlike any other podcast, you listeners are involved in the investigation. You can help. Many of you actively do help. And what we're about to talk about is the direct result of listener involvement and simply would not have happened without it. A few months ago, I was contacted by Sarah Smith. She had some information about Anthony Hardy when he was a child. And I met with her and her mother, Lynn Walters, and discussed this. And very interesting conversation. I'll definitely talk about it in the next episode we do about Anthony Hardy. But during the latter stages of that conversation, we started to talk about Frank Kuhn and the hairdressers that he used to work at. At that point, it became clear that Lynn Walters, and it's Lynn Walters' birthday today, by the way, so happy birthday, Lynn. Lynn Walters knew Eve Stone. And I really wanted to speak with Eve Stone because Eve Stone was the wife of Peter Stone who together with Graham Stone owned Peter Graham Gents hairdressers on the high street in Burton. The hairdressers where Frank Kuhn had worked. The hairdressers that Zoe Kuhn had gone to get a lift from back in the day. Thanks to Sarah and her mum, 
we were able to set up that meeting. So I sat down with all three of them a couple of weeks ago and I asked Eve Stone to cast her mind back to the 1960s, try to remember everything she could about the hairdressers, the kind of people who frequented the hairdressers and Frank Kuhn, the Kuhn family. And thankfully, her memory is still very, very sharp. And it's very important that I did speak to her because of that generation, she's the only one that's still with us. The hairdressers was bought by Peter and Graham Stone's mother in 1964. Peter and Eve were in Macclesfield. Graham and his wife were in Burton. This was an opportunity for both brothers to be back in Burton. Eve, a Macclesfield girl, was less keen but it was an opportunity for the brothers to be set up in business. She couldn't really object. The shop was a gents hairdresser's with a newsagent at the front run by the mother. It was a small shop. It had four chairs and each of those chairs had a barber assigned to it. Graham Stone had a chair. Peter Stone had a chair. Frank Cunn had a chair and there was a fourth chair. So Frank was part of that business from the outset. He wasn't the shareholder in the business, but he was an integral part of the setup. Now the fourth chair, as Eve can remember, was operated by a young apprentice. Now obviously, when I heard that, my pulse started to quicken. Who was the young apprentice and what happened to him? Well, he left eventually, said Eve, but she didn't really think he fitted the description of Fred. He was taller, he had darker hair, he was thin. He left to become a welder, she thinks, and she thinks he was called Kenneth. Now, was that my name confusing the issue here? She didn't think so, she was pretty sure his name was Kenneth. And we'll try and find him. But there was a fourth chair. Eve couldn't remember what happened after the apprentice left. Was there another? She couldn't quite remember. And there were regular customers, of course, but Eve couldn't remember any in particular. And we looked at the reconstruction of Fred. Didn't trigger any immediate memories. The two brothers and Frank were close friends. He worked in that hairdresser's from 1964 to when he left in 1969. That's a long time to be regularly in the company of someone. You get to know them. Eve got to know Frank well, and his wife Val Trout, or Val as everyone knew her, and of course, Zoe. They socialized regularly. Frank was full of stories about his exploits during and after the war, and he could tell a good story. So many times he had had them enthralled about his life story. Eve remembers Frank, he was good looking, he was likeable, he was resourceful, confident, charismatic even. Frank worshipped Zoe and Zoe worshipped him back. Valtraud, less so. Eve remembers Frank and Zoe fondly. Valtraud, less so. She describes Valtraud as domineering opinionated and sour. Valtraud would often speak to Eve about very adult subjects in front of Zoe, to Eve's horror. The 11 year old Zoe knew far, far more about the world than most 11 year olds in 1969. 
and there didn't seem to be a great deal of love in that marriage. But that marriage survived and it survived moving to Australia. And I asked Eve, why did it survive? Well, because of Frank's devotion to Zoe, not to Valtraud. He was willing to endure any unhappiness in the marriage to Valtraud for Zoe's sake. And Zoe adored him back. We started speaking about Frank, the type of person he was. And at this point, she said something startling. Frank had killed people, she said. I know this. He told me. He told me a number of times what had happened. He'd fought in the war, I said, though. Most people fighting would have killed people. No, she said. He didn't mean the killing on the battlefield. He meant hand-to-hand. And in all probability, after he'd been captured or rescued by the Russians, when he was on his travels, he had killed in order to survive, she said. Frank had told them this in detail about what he'd had to do. So, do you think, I asked, if Frank's back was against the wall, if he was really threatened, did he have the capacity and capability of killing someone? Absolutely no doubt, she said. He'd done it quite a few times before. Finally, we talked about how Frank, Valtraud and Zoe had left. I'd spoken to people at the mill at the time and they'd suggested it was a complete surprise. He hadn't mentioned it to anyone almost until they were at the point of leaving. Did she remember something similar? And she did. It had been a complete surprise. It never been mentioned at all. He was there one minute and then they were gone. And for someone who had known the family well, both in the work setting and very frequently socially, that was a shock. There'd been no discussion about the Kun family emigrating until they were very close to the time they left, even with his closest friends. Did that strike you as odd? I asked. Yes, she said. It was very odd. We finished our conversation by speculating. Could Frank have been a spy? I asked. Now, that was an unfair question, to be fair. How was she to know? Oh, yes, he said. He was clever, resourceful, could talk himself out of any situation. So, he could have talked himself out of being caught by the Russians and not killed? I asked. Quite possibly. He was very capable of doing whatever he needed to do to keep Frank Kun alive. So, that was my conversation with Eve. Much of what I'd learned about Frank was confirmed, but to hear it from someone who knew him as well as Eve had at the time was enthralling. Now, does that mean I think Frank killed Fred? No, we're nowhere near reaching that conclusion yet. But I do think he knew something about it though. That's what prompted their escape to Australia. It is starting to look that way. But... As we know, we have more than one suspect in this murder case still, who are still far from cleared and some we haven't really spoken too much about yet. But finally, 
just extrapolating this idea that Frank, Valtroud and Zoe went as a direct result of knowing something terrible had happened on the island. Joe and I were talking the other day, something dawned on us. Exactly when Frank told Zoe that they were emigrating is key, because I suspect that's really very soon after the murder. Zoe and Valtroud knew first, and it might be very useful to know exactly when Zoe first learned about the plan to emigrate, because I'm starting to think that murder date will be in the three months leading up to when Zoe first learned they were leaving. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.